0: Please remain standing for our scripture lesson. We're actually going to take a passage in 1 Corinthians, chapter three, verses sixteen through seventeen. In the midst of Paul's addressing the Corinthians about divisions and disputes in the church, these two verses remind—he was using to remind them and us of the vision that God has for us. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in all of you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. But before we go into this text together today, let's pray. Father, we thank you that everything we do of significance or even minor things should be bathed in prayer, and that we can commit everything to you, the good God. We know you love your church, and today's text is going to make that abundantly clear. We pray that we would be faithful in her, and that you would bless your temple with Jesus, the ultimate and glorious cornerstone of it. Feed us him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So did you know that ever since the very moment of creation in the Garden of Eden, when God first started creating things, his most important thing on his mind has been his temple? If you will, there may have been a temple in heaven among the triune Godhead from eternity past before creation, but God's main concern on earth has always been his temple. In fact, Many scholars view the creation account that you can read of in Genesis 1 and 2 as an actual picture of God's temple being created on earth. The whole creation, all the glory of it, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the whole thing, everything. The place where God will dwell with his creatures, and particularly his rational creatures, in particular human beings, who would be represented in Adam and in Eve. In fact, the formation of the very first human being, the man Adam, was the genesis of God's church. You know, when we talk about when did the church start, it started immediately upon the creation of Adam. That's when it started. And then it grew upon the uh, taking out of his rib of the woman Eve. So it started with Adam and the church is totally analogous to the idea of God's temple. So we will be using the terms interchangeably today. Church and temple basically mean the same thing. Now the the one church temple and remember God's always only had one church. Even today there's not Fifty million churches or a hundred thousand denominations of churches. There's really there's always only been one church, and we just said that in our Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic Church. We don't believe in two or three or ten or there's only one, and by God's grace, you are part of that. Church. The one church has had several iterations or stages of being over the epochs of church history. Let's talk momentarily about that. In the earliest days, this was man after the fall of man into sin, and when God created the covenant, uh, or didn't create it, but started exercising a covenant with Abraham. The church or the temple was manifest in the construction of altars all over the place. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would go to places, and they'd they'd meet God, or God would meet them, Uh, always God taking the initiative, and then they would build an altar, and that was, if you will, the temple of God. I think it was Jacob who put his head on that pillow and said, this is nothing less than Bethel, the house of God, the temple of God, because he had met God there as God met him and the ladder and all that, And then later, in the wilderness wanderings, after the people came out of Egypt, and all the way down to the early days of Israel's monarchy through David's reign, the temple was manifest in the portable tabernacle of meeting. Remember that very elaborate thing that Moses was told to to create? God gave all those specific directions, what it was to look like, how many... Uh, poles it was supposed to have, how many loops it was supposed to have, all the way it was to look, etc., the tabernacle of meeting. And then, under King Solomon, David's son, we have the first stationary temple, which is built in Jerusalem. That was the great temple, and that stayed in effect until 586 B.C., when the Babylonians destroyed it. But before that... Uh, it was, or after that, I should say, after the destruction, it was rebuilt under Nehemiah and Zechariah and those guys in the post-exilic time. And then later, Herod added more to it. So it became, by the time of the New Testament, was this gigantic structure, very impressive in Jerusalem. But finally, in Jesus Christ, the New Covenant Church itself, In Jesus alone, all over the earth, not located in Jerusalem or one place or anything like that, no more of this altar here or a tabernacle there or a temple here, all over the new covenant church now in Jesus is God's temple where he dwells with his people, especially, especially on the Lord's days. Therefore, with that brief uh, background before us, let's make it our goal this morning to be God's prized temple, Christ's holy church. Looking at just two verses, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, which used the outline. God's temple, the doctrine, the church, God's temple is the apple of the Holy Trinity's eye. Now, the reason for this will largely be fleshed out in today's text. Now, the term apple of one's eye, I know that's a colloquial phrase. That just means that's the most important thing to God. I mean, that's what really matters. That's what really gets him, if you will, speaking anthropomorphically excited. That's what really drives the glory of God on earth. Suffice it to say here that it was for very good, solid reason and rationale that The church, God's temple, is the apple of the Holy Trinity's eye. First, because the Sovereign Lord has invested everything in his people. And notice, we're not talking about people in general, human beings. We're not talking about that. Not every person. Instead, we're referring to God's people, his elect and redeemed and specially loved church, his Redeemed ones. Now, the gracious triune deity did put a lot into everything he created. I mean, you look at the stars, the universe, all the stuff out there, the animals, we appreciate them. Great creations, plants, stuff, trees, dirt, rocks, all the stuff God made is all interesting. Some of us were studying rocks that God made this week. Yeah, I remember, I just thought he'd mention that. So everything he made, he put a lot into it. But he spent everything on his elect, redeemed, beloved church, his temple. Now how do we absolutely know that bold and audacious statement I just made to be unqualifiedly true? How do we know that? Because of Jesus Christ himself. And I like that John 2, 2021 20, verses that Elder Craig read. It's a call to worship that reminded us that Jesus Christ, his body, is the ultimate temple. By giving us his own being, his own son, and we're going to see that in the table here today, God, the Holy Trinity, has demonstrated once and for all that he has bestowed upon us his church, not only his very best, but his own self, his very heart. What more could we ever want? What could be better than that? The sovereign Lord has invested everything in his people, and he will tolerate no abuse done to his redeemed ecclesia. Now, the word ecclesia is the Greek word for church. Today's scripture lesson is rather dramatic, really, in its insistence that God will destroy, get that, anyone who seeks to destroy his temple. We're not talking about physical buildings here, we're talking about real human beings who are regenerate members of the body of Christ, the temple of God, who make up the living stones of that temple. Verse 17a explicitly says that. God will destroy anyone who destroys his church. It's a dangerous thing to mess with the church. You're messing with God's most important entity. He cares about it. This language, of course, should really shock to the core any and all who treat Christ and his church, the ministry thereof, with disdain, disrespect, and deceit all liars who have pledged allegiance to God in the context of their church vows, their baptism and covenant, and who then wantonly abandon them, walk away, lie about it, make excuses and get out. They should be shaking and quaking in their boots, but they don't. Why is this the case? because they're not truth-tellers, and their word means nothing not to themselves, and certainly God knows their promises are all hollow as well. For those who have no regard for our holy books, God's sacred scriptures of the Old Testament New Testament, we wouldn't be surprised at that, would we? We would have no cause at all for thinking that they would believe verse 17a, that God will destroy those who destroy us. You wouldn't expect them to believe that. Of course not. They don't believe the Bible. We can respect that. But what gets really interesting is with those people who do claim a belief in the Holy Scriptures, but then negate that profession with their loathing for the subject of the holy books, Jesus Christ himself, who is the chief cornerstone of God's church temple, 1 Peter 2.7. Let's do the exegesis of these two verses, 16 and 17, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians. And marvel at why the redeemed church, God's temple, is so dear to him. So why is the church so important to God? Why is the temple such a big deal? Well, we have, or God has, better said, established that his church in Christ is his most prized treasure. We've already established that fact. I think it's pretty obvious from these verses and every other part of the Bible. Now, from just these two verses of our lesson, let's seek to better grasp why the redeemed church, and we're talking about the redeemed church, not the synagogues of Satan, not the places of rank heresy and unbelief, not the places that promote immorality and idolatry and murder and looting and rape and thievery, and criminal activity in the cause and name of justice. No, we're not talking about them. We're talking about the true church. who's still made up of, of sinners. We don't claim to have perfect doctrine either, but it is the true church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Let's consider why that redeemed church, God's temple, is so dear to him. First, because it is where the triune Lord lives, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? You know, typically where we live is important to us. How many of us don't care about where we live or the condition of our neighborhood or our house or safety or the environment around us? Probably none of us, none of us with any sense. We want our abode, our domicile, our place of being to be a, a safe place, a secure place, a good place. Place where we can feel free from intruders and those who would do us harm. Verse 16, which I just read, is applying the same principle to the triune God of glory himself. That's interesting, isn't it? And we should note, even as per the ESV's good footnote, and I suspect that any other, if you have an NIV, ESV, or King James, or any, probably all have this footnote, and it's a good one that the English word you, employed twice in today's text, in both verses 16 and 17, is plural. It's not singular. So look at that verse again. Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This means, dears, especially given the nice comment Elder Craig made, about the context, you'll remember, if you remember way back when we studied 1 Corinthians, that the Corinthian church was pretty messed up. had a lot of problems, a lot of sins, schisms, and uh, immoralities, uh, heresies. All of those things were going on. Paul is actually saying in this verse that the whole Corinthian church together is the temple of God. And like I just said, that's rather remarkable given the uh, poor state of that particular congregation. But they still had hope because they were still there. They were still under church discipline. They still had legitimate officers. Their doctrine, even though it had been compromised, at the core was still true. There were a lot of on the edge, but hopefully they came back. Now, I would think it is safe to say, I'd be curious what you think, that generally in the evangelical culture, these verses have been interpreted primarily in an individualistic sense. I know in my experience in the evangelical culture over many years, that's the communication I got, that this had to do with individuals. And of course, that is a huge mistake if you look at it primarily that way, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because individual saints do constitute the living body of Christ. So even though this is a plural you, that you is still made up of singular yous, if you will, who create then these congregations about our size in the New Testament era that are holy temples to God. Sparta, all over the Roman Empire. In this case, in in, uh, Greece, in the city of Corinth, where this was originally written. So, it is the case that those who are faithful in the church, especially in keeping by God's grace alone their baptismal and covenant vows, even as these wayward Corinthian Christians did, were and are and you are the individual residences of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want to be unclear. When God says he lives in his temple, he is talking about the general church, the, the legitimate redeemed people of God, baptized as a congregation. But he also lives in the hearts of each one of those saints as well. And that's important to note. So we don't want to emphasize the obvious uh, truth of the grammar and then throw out some of the aspect that is also true about it being us ourselves. The Holy Spirit does indeed dwell in every regenerate human being, which is a saint of the church, by definition, baptized. Baptized. But the same cannot be said about those who aren't faithful to Christ and his covenant. Those who disdain it, who destroy it, who disrespect it, who don't have anything to do with it, who treat it with disgust, who look down their noses at it, not true for them. Holy Spirit does not dwell in them. Why the redeemed church, God's temple, is so dear to him? Because it is where the triune Lord lives and because... Jesus gave his life for her, verse 17a. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Do you ever hear these really ignorant people, and I'm being kind in saying that, foolish perhaps is a good word, who believe the off-spoken nonsense about how the God of the Old Testament was mean and cruel, and he, he was harsh, You know, and the God of the New Testament is nice and soft and gentle. It's a different God. Ever hear this sort of thing? Well, if anybody was tempted to continue to believe that ridiculous theory, verse seventeen A does violence to it. But the intelligent question that we really do need to ask is why is God so passionate about his temple? His atoned for church. And there is an important answer to that question. And believe it or not, it's not primarily you or me. The answer is found in God's only begotten Son, the Word of God, the wisdom of God, the chief cornerstone of that temple, the one through whom the whole created universe, which became God's temple, was made, and the one through whom... God speaks life when the Father elects people and brings them to Jesus, places them into the church, regeneration. In other words, there's you who are the true temple of God are treasured. You are treasured. But the reason is because of Jesus, whose blood was shed for you. His blood, his person, his body, which we're going to celebrate here, is priceless beyond measure. How else does anybody explain words like these? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Now think with me historically about those who have destroyed God's once legitimate outward temple in history. We've already made allusion to this. First one is the Babylonians in 586. They did it at God's behest. God told them to do it. Nebuchadnezzar, go in there, wipe the place out. So they did it at God's behest. But, what's left of Babylon today? Nothing. A pile of rocks. A place of salt pits. Eminently more graphically, the unbelieving Jews of the first century destroyed God's greatest temple, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They murdered him. They, cruci- they had the Romans crucify him on a cross. They violated that temple. They destroyed that temple. John 2.21 The body of Christ and the unbelieving Jews is possessing any covenant legitimacy or designation were utterly destroyed and wiped out in 70 A.D. And if you were around for the Revelation series a while ago, you remember that. Even as God's former but no longer temple in Jerusalem, got systematically dismantled by Titus and the Roman army under God's direction. Why the redeemed church, God's temple, is so dear to him? Because it's where the triune Lord lives. Because Jesus gave his life for her. And finally, because her value is beyond measure, verse 17b. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Again, these are remarkable words if you consider who he's writing. He's he's writing to these Corinthians. He said a lot of harsh things in correcting them already, and he's going to say more. And yet he affirms that they are God's temple. So in what sense were they, and more importantly for us, we, the true church today, just like the Corinthian parish back then, both holy, and in what sense are we God's temple? Let's ask that question. Because we all know in our own hearts of hearts, in our own selves, there's no holiness, there's no goodness, there's no righteousness, there's no justice in us at all. Do we understand this? Do you remember Joshua's great theological insight in becoming a communicant member here? No righteousness at all in ourselves. So how are we rightly called holy in God's temple? Answer, we are holy in Jesus alone, and we are God's temple in Jesus alone. It's that simple. Plus nothing, all received by grace through faith, which is a gift of God to us. Now, someone might say, wait a minute, Pastor, the Corinthians, they were full of sin. They were doing all kinds of foolish things. Yes, that statement is true. But it does not negate the fact that they were yet holy in the temple of God. Paul says it right here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the reason, get this now, this is really, really important and very practical, the reason they maintained this heavenly integrity and honor, was not because they were so great, but because by God's grace, they were still in Christ, in the church, at church on Sunday, in submission to the discipline of the church, still outwardly keeping their vows, despite their many sins. Again, the same cannot be said about those who are, or were not around to hear Paul's letter read at the end of their Sunday morning service, assuming they weren't traveling or sick or had a legitimate reason to be gone. But they just decided they didn't need the church anymore, too good for it. The letter of 1 Corinthians was read, but they didn't hear it. And the reason they are not included is they, unlike those who were still in the covenant, under discipline, they cut themselves off from Jesus, the only author and giver of life. That's how important your church covenant vows are. And that's why we can be, it can be said that you can be perfect in your obedience simply by being faithful in the covenant. And that's what God calls us to do. That sounds simple, but it's not possible. It's, an, it's a miracle. We know this. All you have to do is do the math and figure out how many people are able to do that. It's not that many. Let's do a little more application this morning, and understand how we as the forgiven church, the temple of God, should view ourselves. So, given all this wonderful theology in the context of these verses, which, by the way, is the foundation doctrine of Jesus Christ, taught in verses 10 to 15, that he's foundation, and we're built on it. The temple is built on that foundation, Given all that, how should we view ourselves and better comprehend how we as the forgiven church, temple of God, should indeed view ourselves? First, as those on whom the greatest divine gift ever has fallen. What could be better than to be on the foundation Christ, and what could be more noble than to be called his temple, his church, his people, being built up on that foundation? But the reason for this august truth and wonder and privilege and honor that we experience is because of what we're going to see in this table, Lord willing, in a little while. And That is, the bread of God, the man of God, has fallen down upon us in the person of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. We'll be reading some verses from John 6, reminding us of that. Jesus himself is the bread and wine, water of life. All of this immeasurable grace in Christ is cause for rejoicing, but also reason for holy fear. Let's consider that. It's cause for rejoicing because we're fed the food of God, Jesus Christ, God's Son, in the preaching and in the sacrament. It's cause for fear because the temple destroyers, Paul is alluding to in this text, are not those people out there, but people who claimed some kind of context in the church. Those who taste of the heavenly gift, Hebrews 6.4, but who in fact hold Christ in contempt, Hebrews 6.6. Let us be among those, dears, not just today but always, who relish the Son of God, the temple of God, the church of God, the people of God, as the ultimate, and seek to grow in our love through God, through Christ, for the three members of the Holy Trinity. We should view ourselves as those on whom the greatest divine gift has ever fallen and as those who have the most solicitous Father imaginable. Next Sunday is Father's Day. We don't make much of that, rightly so, because every Sunday is, is the Lord's Day. I never like a uh, competition to the Lord's day. But we can bow to it a little and say, isn't it ironic that we're talking about this wonderful father that we have? How good is this God, this father of ours, that he would give us not just food to eat and jobs and health and things, and family and stuff, cars and money and whatever, But he would give us his only begotten Son, the eternal word and wisdom of the Holy Trinity. What kind of a Father is this that we, the true church, serve and love? How could we, the recipients of so much divine grace and mercy, not love this Father? I'll tell you, it's not possible. It's not possible. If you have been redeemed, transformed, renewed, recreated, born again, regenerated, you love this Father, and rightly so. Do we understand who we are and who and subordinately what we possess in our Lord Jesus Christ? In God's Son, we the redeemed church have been given everything, Paul says that elsewhere. Gives us everything. Church owns everything in Christ. Everything we could ever need or want or imagine in order to be in fullness everything a created being in the image of God could ever be. See, all the people that we know, they're all creatures made in the image of God. But they live way under the poverty line. They live in... In squalor, they don't live like human beings. They don't rise up. The true church raises people up to the glorious heights of who they can be in Jesus Christ. Everything they could possibly be, despite all our troubles, our sins, the clogs of our flesh, our temptations, all the the bad things we have to deal with, even those things are used by God to make us more into the image of Christ. And how is this blessed Lord Jesus apprehended? Do we have to work for him? Do we have to do something? Do we have to become something? How is he grasped onto, now and always, by grace through faith, in his person, the person of Jesus. And that faith is a gift of God. His blood atonement and his glorious resurrection, that's the word we have for the world too. You don't need to worry about anything, dears. Just be faithful. I know it's hard to do. God just calls us to be free and happy in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. God's temple is precious to him. He will treasure and protect all those who are this temple, this church. And he will destroy. I mean destroy. He will wipe out. He will conquer all those. All those who do it, you, her, the church, any harm. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're that kind of a God. It's a wonderful God that you are. We're grateful that you are. Thank you that you care about your temple all the iterations of it through history, but especially what we have today. Jesus Christ, the ultimate chief cornerstone. And as we partake of the supper, may we do so with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.